HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to A Taste of the Past, a journey through culinary history. I'm Linda Palaccio, and I'll be your host for the next half an hour, and you're listening to the Heritage Radio Network. We'd like to thank our sponsor today, Fairway Market, like no other market. And today, we are going to be talking about American food trends, probably the biggest American food trend, the hamburger. And our special guest today is Andrew Smith. And just in case um, you want to hear our show over again, because it'll be so riveting, we want to remind you that you can log in to heritageradionetwork.com and listen to any of the shows that are archived at any time that you'd like. We are broadcast live every Thursday at noon. And again, it's the ta- a taste of the past. Um, Andrew, welcome. Hi, Linda. I know you're no stranger to Heritage Radio Network. You're but no stranger to, to hamburgers back. either. <laughs> <laughs> Nor am I, unfortunately. I love them. <laughs> but I, I wanted to tell um, our listeners a little bit about you. Andrew, um, I, I don't have enough time to tell don't our audience everything. <laughs> say everything. Come on. <laughs> but Andrew teaches culinary history and professional food writing at the New School in New York City. I must say he is a teacher extraordinaire and is always teaching and lecturing and giving away his talks and information for free most of the time, which is is very generous. But as we were talking earlier, in for the past uh, in the history of culinary history, it's the only way you could get it out there was basically <laughs> to give it for free, right? That's true. Um, but but you are also an uh, a prolific writer. Uh, let's just say that um, the list of articles and books is exhaustive. Over three hundred articles on food and food history. And authored or edited seventeen books. Are we still at seventeen, or and counting seventeen? Finished a couple more since that was written, but they <laughs> I haven't had been published yet. <laughs> All right. Um, and he's the esteemed editor of the Oxford Encyclopedia of Food and Drink in America, and then the 
Well, the Encyclopedia of Junk Food and Fast Food. I guess that's equally, not equally esteemed, but it's interesting. It was a tough job. Somebody had to do it. <laughs> um, and well, we'll mention some of the single subject books, which are just cute as can be. But his most recent book is Eating History, 30 Turning Points in the Making of American Cuisine. And that's published by Columbia University Press. Great book. And it's very new, by the way. And um, it really is a great synopsis, if you can call the whole book a synopsis. But you packed so much of American eating history into this one tome. And and I like to say eating history because I devour history like I'm eating a hamburger. (laughs) But um, it is the history of how we eat in America. Great. But the single subject books... Uh, are are just terrific for people who you know are so curious about some of these wonderful kind of popular American food cultures: ketchup, the tomato, peanuts, popcorn, and of course the hamburger, which you recently wrote for the Edible series. And you are the general editor for the I Edible am. series, right? I am. Well, then, what I wanted to know, since hamburgers are really a food trend that has captured the American culture for dare I say, over 100 years. Over 100 years. Um, I figured who else but to give us the history than our own Andrew Smith. Well, we have Josh Ozersky, who has a show here on Heritage Network. He, too, weighed in. Um, And I wanted you to give me a history of the hamburger, and let's talk about this ongoing trend. But everyone claims to have started the hamburger. Give me the lowdown. There's no evidence for all of the claims to be the first one. And in fact, some of the claims are clearly not true because we have the earliest evidence for hamburger sandwiches, uh, 1893. <laughs> so there's a number of claims that, well, we invented this in 1900. And the answer is now there's lots of evidence prior to that. But who really invented it? Who knows? Most likely a street vendor, probably in the Midwest, maybe in Chicago. Uh, you had uh, a problem of... Uh, Prior to that time, people would have eaten the patty, uh, which would have been served in a diner or in a in a restaurant. Uh, but when street vendors all of a sudden had a grill that they could use, which only started in 1892, <laughs> then they figured out they could make this too. But unfortunately, they didn't have any knives, forks, and plates in order to eat this. And so they put it between two pieces of bread. And, and that's the earliest evidence that we have. It really is a street food. Um, and it moves from a street food into a, a commercial food. And within about 15 years, it's the the hottest little number in American sandwiches. It's number one American sandwich within a very short period of time. Well, in the opening of, of the book, um, the Edible Series book, The Hamburger, that you wrote, you gave just a poignant little um, capturing of your youth about the hamburger stand and brought me right back there. <laughs> I, 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 my first recollection of eating outside of a home uh, was really going to a little hamburger stand with a uh, old portly man with a splotched um, uh, cover with ketchup and mustard and grease all over it. And uh, he prepared those hamburgers piece by piece. And it took a whole 10 minutes to happen. And when you're four years old and you're hungry, 10 minutes can be an eternity. <laughs> so I can remember that very carefully. As far as I know, I don't remember eating out of the home prior to that time. I, my parents may have may have taken me someplace that I didn't remember. But yeah. that, that was yeah. my first recollection. And, and then we moved on to... I, I had my first experience with McDonald's. I mean, no matter what you think of McDonald's today, and there's oh. lots of problems with it, which we're delighted to get into, in, when it first hit 
uh, Southern California in the early uh, 1950s, there was nothing like it. It was it? unbelievable. I grew up in Indiana. It was, it when it came, I mean, it was like a town celebration. It was it an was incredible fast. experience. And, uh, and we did buy them by the bag. You did? And yeah. uh, there was no inside dining room. You had to eat either in your car, most likely. And or you didn't drive up. You parked your you car. You didn't drive up. No drive-in. No, right? no drive-in. You had to stand at the window. And the line was usually long. But, but the, by the time you got up to the front of it, they had a little clock there, at least the ones I went. And they pressed that button as soon as you placed your order. And within 45 seconds, they guaranteed that you would have your food in it. And that's exactly how quick it took. And, and so, they were small, even for, I think I was probably six or seven years old at the time, eight maybe. don't want to date myself here. But <laughs> um, you could, I mean, I could eat a couple of them. They were tiny. They were little. They weren't as small as White Castle, but they were... They were small and they soft. They were small. Yeah. They were small, soft. And they Not were a whole lot between the bun. And they were 15 cents. 15 cents. Right. And they had two pickles in them. Right. And Ray Kroc did not start no, McDonald's. No, that's, that's a myth that Ray loved to tell about uh, how, how he started McDonald's. But it really was the McDonald brothers. They were uh, two New Hampshireites that went to Southern California to get into the movies, and they made it. Uh, they were ticket takers in a, a movie theater. Um, and they concluded when their movie theater closed that the uh, way to really make money wasn't the movies, but it was selling food. <laughs> so they started as street vendors, and they moved to a restaurant and uh, with barbecue chicken and whatnot. And then they decided that, wait a minute, barbecue chicken, you never knew how many people were going to order it, and you had to start cooking it at 45 minutes in advance. And so you either didn't have enough when people came and ordered it, or you had too much and you had a lot of junk left over. But burgers, you could cook them very quickly and have good turnover. So they really shifted to burgers, and they moved from uh, L.A. to San Bernardino, and they opened up this octagonal-shaped um, uh, drive-in, and um, they started what we think of as McDonald's today. So then Ray Kroc bought the business from Then that Ray Kroc came along. Uh, as, soon, as soon as he heard about them, he flew out to L.A., went, went to the, looked at their operation, and within uh, two days had a, a verbal agreement with McDonald Brothers to franchise the operation outside of those areas that had already been franchised in Southern California. And captured America and, by storm. And, he, and without Ray Kroc, I don't think, I don't think that the, the McDonald's empire would ever have been created. I mean, he yeah. was an organizational yeah. genius. And like many things, people, one, one type of person has to start something and get it off the ground, and somebody else comes along and then converts it into the machine that it really is today. So that was one myth busted, which he probably wasn't thrilled i think he liked to have his name attached to the fact that he started McDonald's. he was an ego but, uh, he was a little ego uh, oriented right. and uh, did like to think of himself as as being um, the great burger king and indeed he was but he just didn't start mcdonald's well in, in talking about some of the myths surrounding the hamburger and there are so many is there a connection is there really a connection to hamburg germany um, I really started with that idea. In fact, as a teenager, I was in Germany for a couple of years, and I went to Hamburg, and I asked for a hamburger, and the strange <laughs> looks on people's face. This was before McDonald's and before the Americanization of, of much of Europe, and uh, it was the, they had no idea what I was talking about, and they thought I was crazy. So uh, the answer is certainly people in Hamburg, like virtually everybody in Europe, they would have had ground or chopped meat put into a patty, and you would have consumed that but putting it into between two slices of bread is an americanization of it um and so um the people in hamburg had little to do with it it's just the same as uh, is a is a hot dog a frankfurter or a wiener or is a danish a danish and the answer is no it has yep. nothing to do with that it's just a sales pitch and it works out nicely 
Okay, well, that's <laughs> that's good to know. You um, you actually mentioned in your new book, um, Eating History, you talk about the hamburger as uh, one of the thirty turning points yeah. in America. So when we come back, I'd like to um, like to explore this turning point a little further. Okay. <laughs> Don't forget the mustard. Don't forget the onion. I gotta go see my girl. Hold that bun in a hurry. To a taste of the past. I'm Linda Palaccio, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. And we are sponsored today by Fairway Market, like no other market. Happy about that. Here in the back of Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick. And our guest today is Andy Smith. We've been talking about hamburgers. And uh, Andy, I don't know if if uh, anyone was able to hear the mu- musical interlude. I chose that song for you. It I was love that Hamburgers song. and Popcorn. I love it. <laughs> Um, we were going to to talk about your inclusion of the hamburger as one of the the main thirty turning points in American eating history. And wh- what? Why do you choose that? What? Uh, it's McDonald's, uh, not uh, not necessarily uh, the hamburger. Okay. And uh, the, the hamburger itself certainly had a huge impact on America. It was certainly the the main food served in drive-ins, and it was a part of America uh, moving from the horse and buggy into the automobile. And it made it made it possible for people to eat in their car and go out of the home and have a relatively inexpensive food. But what McDonald's did was create an extremely efficient system for preparing food. And virtually uh, every single fast food operation from Burger King to KFC to um, Jack in the Box to Wiener Schnitzel, you name them, they all To all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions, (laughs) sesame seed. people, People who started those firms went to McDonald's, looked at their operation, said, this is extremely efficient, we're going to duplicate it. And they essentially duplicated what the McDonald brothers had created. And Ray Kroc made it more efficient. And obviously, his goal was to uh, keep prices down and make big profits. And, uh, and quality and quality control. And, and quality control. Yeah. So that, the, the, at least in theory, you would, if you went to a McDonald's in San Bernardino, it would be exactly the same as if you went to a McDonald's in, um, in Maine or in Florida. And at least that was the idea. So that if you're driving in your car and you don't really want to try the local cuisine, um, you know McDonald's, you know what they've got, and it's always going to be the same. Now, today, they've diversified a lot, uh, and particularly from country to country. The, the, the products are very different, but historically, they would have uh, been exactly the same. Well, in fact, if you wanted to open a franchise, I mean, you had to go to Hamburg, McDonald University. I mean, they... Well, you didn't have to go, but you, but, would, but you were given a uh, over 150-page contract.
contract which you had to sign. Mm. And if you violated the contract, they could and did remove your ability to sell McDonald's hamburgers. Mm. So um, uh, it's a fascinating thing how franchising moved along. Franchising existed before Ray Kroc came along, but Ray Kroc polished it so so that you couldn't get out of it. You you couldn't easily break any any rule that they had. You had to do exactly what the uh, company um, told you to carry out. So even though other chains were pre-existing to yeah. um, to McDonald's, like White Castle, for instance, right? Um, but it, but but McDonald's really. Um, well, the McDonald brothers all, were huh? based basing their model in part on on White Castle. When McDonald brothers took a look at it, they fell in love with Henry Ford. I mean, it wasn't just the automobile; yeah. it was the assembly line technique. Production. And the goal was to have the least amount of activity going on to produce the maximum amount of food. And so it was. They were two efficiency experts that looked at this and and knew exactly uh, precisely how many ounces had to go into the burger, exactly how much uh, ketchup went in, exactly all the other things that were down there, and it it made the difference. KFC existed before. Uh, McDonald's too, but KFC did not take off until uh, Jake Brown, who bought KFC from the Colonel, took one look at the McDonald's operations. So we got to have the exact same thing, hmm. and so they duplicated it not with hamburgers but with uh, chicken, um, and others did did followed along the same the same way. So, so it really was, as you say, a so Henry Ford was, model. It, it was a Henry Ford model that that took over the fast food industry um, and is the basis of of fast food today and the best. Uh, the best statistics are either somewhere between 25 to 60 million Americans every single day go to a fast food wow. establishment. Well, in your um, book, Eating History, you did make reference to uh, McDonald's and the turning point as kind of eat and run, as you say. You knew yeah. what you were going to get, but also this this theory of being able to eat on the run. Yeah, well, the, the, the eat and run business actually goes back hundreds of years. Yeah. The earliest Europeans over here were absolutely uh, stunned at the speed with which Americans ate their food. Uh, and within four minutes, in some cases, the Europeans claimed that Americans had come in, uh, put the food on their plate, ate the food, and then walked out. And part of that is the question of how much how much do we value food? And for many people, we have all limited time. We, I don't have time to cook four hours a day or three hours a day, which would have been the case in my grandmother's time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I've got a short amount of time. I need to fuel up, um, and let's head for a fast food operation. And, and McDonald's was the one that really started all of the, what we think of today as fast food. Hmm. Interesting. Because uh, a lot of claims were made, um, as you say, they're you debunked most all of them, <laughs> but right. about the about um, putting the meat between the bun, as you say, so right. because there were no utensils, and this became popular fare at, uh, at fair at fairs, popular food at um, yeah, like county a, fairs and world a, fairs. It's a street food to yeah. begin with, and that's the same thing as what yeah. goes on at most county fairs. And that was it. You mentioned White Castle. White Castle uh, certainly was the initial model uh, for fast food, but the problems is it targeted inner cities and it targeted industrial areas. The goal was you were going to come into White Castle at midnight after the midnight shift from your business. And so, therefore, they were in the inner cities. After World War II, inner cities changed. There was strife and crime and all sorts of things. And the White Castle virtually disappeared before McDonald's came on the scene. It exists today, mm-hmm. um, and, and it's thriving today. But it followed the McDonald's model hmm. of, of, of basically going into suburban America first and, and then um, being very cautious about going into inner cities. Yeah, it did sort of fade away there for a while. Mm-hmm. You had to look hard to find one. Um, you know, it's interesting because all of a sudden uh, you can't look, you can't find a, a food magazine that doesn't have 
the ode to the hamburger, and all of a sudden it's become this new, well, as some people think, it's the new popular trend. But hamburgers with kimchi, topping hamburgers with special sides, I, uh, I the start, foie gras stuffed hamburgers. I, I started collecting uh, diverse types of hamburgers, and I stopped at 1,500 types. Huh. So uh, all I can do is say that's part of the reason for its retention of its popularity. You can do so many things with the idea. You've, you've got the idea down there. You can add whatever you want. You can put stuff inside the burger. The inside-out burger I love. It's got cheese on the inside. It's got bacon on the inside. <laughs> and it's got all sorts of other things on the patty. So you can you make a diversity of it. That's it. I think the latest uh, trend, uh, the reasons are relatively simple. It's a recession, and it's cheap. That's and right. McDonald's did very well last quarter. They're building a 1,000 new stores. Uh, they're just committed to do this. Um, so I think um, in, in one sense, when, when people don't have a lot of money, you take a look around, and you want to go out, um, but you don't necessarily – you can't afford um, Per Se and some of the other top-flight restaurants. <laughs> well, even even cooking at home. I mean – you know, I think the the grilled hamburger in the summertime has has come back with such popularity. People used, you know, they went to steaks and shish kebab and and you know, doing all kinds it's, of fancy things on the grill. But the you know, because of economic times, I think hamburgers, the hamburger and hot dog barbecue grill in the summer, is once again extremely it's, popular. It's real American food. American, you got to pronounce right. it right. The <laughs> other side to it, of course, is it's now a high end food too. If you walk into most restaurants, they're going to have a burger down there. The cheap burgers on the high-end restaurants start at $20, and then they go up to $5,000 oh, uh, in well. Las Vegas. So you can really get uh, almost anything that you want with the paired with the burger with, with from the best uh, uh, wines from, Cham- from um, Burgundy or whatnot. So all I can do is say it really has this diversity from upper class to lower class to um, to to working class to home. It's well, and it's it's nice that everything old becomes new again. Makes us feel that we're not well. Lots eating of things old trends. come in and go out. Right. This and burger keeps keeps having new new uh, new shifts and new changes, and uh, it, it has new births of, of something quite different than what it was uh, fifty years ago. So. That's right. That's right. Well, when we come back, we'll talk about some more modern food trends coming our way. Sounds good. Welcome back. I'm Linda Palaccio, and you're listening to A Taste of the Past, and we're talking with food historian Andrew Smith. Uh, we've been talking about the hamburger and here on Heritage Radio Network, um, but we're we're talking about the hamburger as a new American food trend. Which, a new trend, that's <laughs> right. It. Been around for over 100 years, but hey, if people think it's new and they've just invented something new and different about it, good for them. Um and I think we are today is the end of the first week of 2010, and I thought we might talk about some of 
some other food trends since all the prognosticators and and uh, are usually food wrong, but, <laughs> yeah, they are usually. but it, but, but it right. gets us published. That's good. But I'm going to roll something out <laughs> sure. there, yeah, and that is meatballs. meatballs. I have been I seeing meatballs all over the place. What's with meatballs? They've been around for. Over 2,000 years? Well, at least 2,000 years, and probably before that. I mean, the problem is after you butchered your cow, uh, you really had to have do something with all of the scraps that were there, and so you chop it up, and, and what better way to serve it than put it into uh, either a sausage or, or alternately put it into a ball form and, and fry it or cook it in some form and serve it. So it's something that's very easy to do. But it's like the hamburger. You can add all sorts of flavorings in. You can put, you don't normally eat meatballs alone. You usually eat it with something, whether it's a, nice tomato sauce or or any one of a thousand other varieties i think it's just diverse and it's low cost well that's coming back to the economic times hamburger is always in and and uh meatballs are always in when the when the economy dips that's that's some of the things you got well it was yes it's always been a way to stretch you know a little bit but they're good too i like them and they have such diversity i mean you know, you can, you can go from Swedish meatballs to Italian meatballs to American meatballs. Well, don't taste like anything like those. I mean, you really have a great diversity that you can choose from. And uh, Well, we didn't really talk too much about, you know, the Salisbury steak. and, and yeah. um, There and- was, a, there was a, a Dr. Salisbury. He was a Civil War general. Um, and his problem was he was trying to help soldiers after the war deal with wounds in the stomach, and he had to get foods that they could easily consume. So, chew, right? so yeah, what his chew. goal was, he took beef and he scraped off um, the beef. Rather, the grinders were not common at that time. And then he put that into a patty, cooked it very quickly. It wasn't raw, but it was very quickly served. And he thought that would be much easier for soldiers to, or in this case, wounded soldiers to digest. Um, and so Salisbury steak really is named after somebody who really invented something. And he then when meat grinders came out, he started promoting meat grinders. They quoted him in terms of promotions. And one of the reasons on why meat grinders took off so quickly in the 1870s, 1880s was because of his endorsements. Hmm, interesting. And, and that we did not um, discuss either, which, yeah. But I think it is relevant to discuss. I mean, they took the, tried to take all the fillers out of hamburgers, but the problem remained that when it became industrialized, the meat packers ran a dirty business. You had no dirty. idea what you were putting into all that right. burger, which is why lots of places started serving hamburger. But the simple things, I mean, even in my youth, uh, the, the institutional food that I was in, uh, cafeterias and like that would have put uh, oatmeal and things like that yeah. in just to make extend it, it and, and, and stretch it out. Uh, but, of course, you could put anything in it. It wouldn't have to be anything related to beef or anything related to anything edible that you would think of. And lots of people got sick, which was why Cat- White Castle had this huge success. It was white. It was pure. They ground their beef twice a day. Uh, you could yeah. see them do it. It had glass there. I mean, they did everything they could to give it a pure image. And, and that's one of the shifts and changes that go on with Well, Amber. and how little things change. Even today, you know, we've got problems with the, um, you know, the bacteria and, and meat packers and Everyone kind of looking closely at how their how the meat is ground and it's raised, a problem. and it's, it's a problem. So you know, from hamburgers and meatballs and meatloaf. I mean, these are all, as you say, good hard economic time I foods. Love meatloaf. I yeah. love meatloaf. Okay. Meatloaf is good. Cold. A, a cold, yeah, and then the yeah. sandwich. And it's, just, it's kind of a burger, not quite, but it's kind of a burger. Well, I mentioned the the food magazine. I mean, it, I I have. To, I wish I would have 
brought them all in or saved them and counted. I can't tell you, every magazine that would arrive in the mail had a picture of meatballs yeah. on the cover. And so all the food writers got together and yes. decided they're going to write about meatballs? Well, yes, now that, you That had to be it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a conspiracy. All right. I mentioned that because as a food, as a food writer and as a, a, a teacher of professional food writing, um, you've got your finger on the pulse. In fact, you've just organized a wonderful conference that's coming up in February in New York City, February 12th to the 14th. That's Tell me a little about that. Absolutely true. We have 50 of the top food writers in America all coming together to talk about food writing. And I think the reason on why it's so successful, which is, was I expected a small group and a small conference, and now it's a large conference and a large group. And, and the list of names is really quite impressive, I must say. Uh, it's uh, it's. I was shocked. Uh, only two people turned us down, and one was because she was already scheduled to be on Valentine's Day with her husband um, in Cancun, and another one because she was uh, scheduled to be speaking in uh, Europe at the time. I said, "All right, those two excuses are good," but everybody else said yes, um, and so it really is uh, something I would look forward to. So. Terrific. Well, are you going to try to make this an annual event? Don't know. I, I thought we'd just do it. It was the. I think. It was the closing of Gourmet that um, got mm-hmm. got the impetus behind this, and all mm-hmm. of us started saying, we've been writing for a long time, and the writing world is now changing daily. And so uh, I think none of us really know understand how that is. So. Yeah. Well, um, if anyone's interested out there, you can go to foodwritersconference.com yep. and get the information. Um, and what Andy, there's just so much to talk about. You've got to come back again because we've got – 29 more turning points to talk about. <laughs> is, is this one I And then a lot more. Is this one I get to do my three-hour lecture? That's right. <laughs> and he can, folks. He can. Uh, but um, what I would like to to do is, is thank you at this time for trying to keep the comments within our time frame. I know it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. <laughs> <laughs> when you teach in two-hour blocks, it's tough. <laughs> but um, it, and if you get a chance to, if you're in New York City and you want to learn more about culinary history, you can always look Andrew up at the New School and, and take one of his courses. They are wonderful courses. They really are. Thank you. And I thank you for today. I also like to thank Lorenzo Ragionieri and Nat Wiener, our producer and engineer today. Great job, boys. And I would like to thank again Fairway Market like no other market. This has been A Taste of the Past on Heritage Radio Network. Don't forget you can log in to heritageradionetwork.com. <laughs> <laughs>